Good morning, good evening, and welcome. Great to have you joining us. Well, it's holiday time almost everywhere in the world. And if you're joining us on the 26th of December, as we release this, well, thank you. The show must still go on. Now, back in August 2022, my co-partner, Robin Mertens, was a guest on the Supersede Reinsurance Podcast for their episode number 27. A bit more about that in a moment. He was talking about platforms, marketplaces, and the ecosystems that are out there supporting innovation in insurance. And this came alongside the release of our report on this topic. That's available on the Instech website, and there'll be a link in the episode notes. Now, Ben Rose and Jared Lee launched Superseed in 2019, and they've managed to find time between running their company to also run a successful podcast. So we are delighted to have Superseed as a member. And as we're always thrilled to be on other people's podcasts, we thought we'd bring you this episode from the Superseed podcast itself. Now, before we kick off the discussion with Ben, Jared and Robin, I asked Ben himself to explain a bit about Superseed and why they launched the Reinsurance podcast. Ben, great to have you for a quick chat before we get back into your podcast, actually. And uh, thank you very much for allowing us to borrow that and release it to the Instec audience. Just before we kind of hand over to you, Ben, uh, Robin, a couple of things I want to ask you. So as a podcast professional, and I know on your show, you ask people all sorts of questions. I thought you might quite enjoy the, uh, the podcast elevator challenge, which is like 15 seconds to tell us about Supersede, for those who don't know, by the way, there's a lot more on our website about all the things we've done with you and, and thank you for your support. So I'm going to hit the timer and we're going to beep at the end. Uh, so here we go. 15 seconds from Ben Rose on what Supersede is. Thanks, Matthew. So Supersede is a digital platform for reinsurance exclusively. So we help seedants, brokers and reinsurers to share deals and deal data in a way that's never been seen before. Well, brilliant. You're spot on. I think you've been rehearsing that before we, we got together. <laughs> well, we have to have to get out there a lot with all those those happy reinsurers who need us. <laughs> so we've talked a bit about Supersede, but I, I am going to ask you another question, which is in terms of like scale. So we know what you do, but what's the best way for people to think about you in terms of the size of the the market you're addressing and also to extent within that market, you know, what's the activity you've got going on with uh, insurers and reinsurers and brokers? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I think one very fitting for the episode everyone's about to listen to with Robin, because we talk a, a bit there about platforms and, and how different platforms have emerged in niches and in regions. And for reinsurance in particular, it's been a, a necessarily global industry that, that's needed global technology to support it. So as Supersede, out of the gates, really, we have to support super reinsurance on a global level just to enable the transactions that in most cases tend to involve multiple regions at once. Uh, so we are looking really then at, at global non-life reinsurance in our case, so about $200 billion a year of seeded premium that we're helping to support by providing all of the underlying data that comes in normally. In the old world, submission packs containing lots of links to spreadsheets and, and tables and so on uh, and PDF files, converting all that into real validated actuarial grade data and then really helping to share that with the brokers and the reinsurers further down the chain in the form of structured deal information as well. Uh, it's just a big project, obviously, uh, but we're lucky to be supported by a, a number of major sedents and brokers and reinsurers who are looking to connect in a much more effective and secure way. Well, I'm sure your investors love that market size of $200 billion. Clearly, that's not all coming your way, but you taking a share of the transaction costs or, or your transaction fees to dr drive your own revenue? We track ourselves against the value we're delivering. Uh, the amount of time that students and brokers and reinsurers spend on just getting a reinsurance done is, is months of work and, and months of highly skilled people's efforts to understand the data that's flowing through these transactions. So we actually now just charge on a simple annual SaaS fee basis based on the the size and activity of the organizations involved. Oh, well, good. Well, thanks. So as I mentioned, a lot more information out there, superseed.com for your information, or if they want to come through the Instec site, we've got a lot of interesting things, including, Ben, the interview we did with Jared. I said, look, it was about a year ago. So Jared Lee, your co-founder, episode 151. He has reached the the Thousands Fan Award stage. So congratulations to that. I actually definitely recommend that one. It's, he's talking about some of the challenges of founding a business. 
But I, I just wanted to come on to the, your podcast. We both know how hard work these are. You've got a very professional outfit. In fact, I rather feel that you've spoiled Robin now because he turned up to your facilities. You give him a comfy chair. You put a microphone in front of him. He doesn't got to worry about doing all of the, the fiddly bits himself. He's now very keen to use the facility for our <laughs> podcast. But tell me a bit about why you're doing a podcast. The reason we really decided to do this is, is because as a company, we want to live our values. And one of the biggest values we have is that reinsurance needs more. Uh, we, we just noticed this void in the reinsurance space when it came to technology, when it came to conversations about reinsurance. And in the sort of podcasting world, even in the, the general Spotify, Apple Music, et cetera, world, when you search for reinsurance, there was nothing. I think we found a very strange song that had reinsurance in the title for some reason, who knows why. But otherwise, once again, reinsurance was being left at the back of the queue. So we really want to shine a light on our industry and make sure that it gets the attention that it deserves. Hence, starting off the podcast and getting to spend time with some fantastic guests, uh, including Robin, of course. Yeah, and I found it very interesting. Of course, you and Jared have got backgrounds in broking and yourself are at Lloyd. So you do bring some firsthand knowledge to that. Well, Ben, I'm going to let you go. I'm sure we'll get back together again for something longer, but we're going to hand over. I'm going to sort of let you go physically for this, but we're going to hand back to you digitally, <laughs> to you and Jared and Robin. <laughs> and uh, I'm sure people are going to enjoy this as much as I did. There's some really fascinating information in here about both what we're doing and what we're doing. So with that, I'll say um, a temporary farewell and see you face to face again soon in London. Thanks, Matthew. Enjoy, everyone. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Reinsurance Podcast. I am your co-host, Jared Lee. And I'm Ben Rose. How are you doing, Jared? I'm very, very well. We have a special guest today, again in the studio, the one, the only, chairman now of Instech, formerly Instech London, Robin Mertens. Welcome, sir. Well, thank you very much. I'm, I'm expecting a whole new kind of respect yeah, I've got the chairman title. It has certainly warranted. Yeah, Jared's <laughs> going to have to wear a college shirt. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Should have, should have dressed up for the occasion. Um, but, but Robin, you sort of are, have been for those in London like a staple of sort of the innovation space for ages. I know when when Ben and I first started looking at like the future of insurance and this Instech movement. You're one of the first people we sort of landed on and started going to your sort of monthly um, events with everybody. So um, very much someone who's from your career in the industry then sort of left going, where is this, you know, how is technology going to transform where we go next? But I'd love to sort of dive into a bit of your career and then what sort of drew, drew you into the technology sphere of, of, of this, of insurance, and we can go from there. Um, well, thank you, and thanks for the kind words about in Instech. I mean, that, that we'll come back to, but but I'm I'm doing that by accident, not by design. There's nothing else left for me to do. Mm. Um, but by my first foray into technology, when I knew remarkably little about it, was was you know age forty when a friend of mine, Alex Letts, came along and said, um, "I've raised a lot of money. I've going to build um, e Lloyd's." Uh, and I know about technology. Do you want to come and be Mr. Insurance part of it? And I was pretty unhappy where I was. So that, that was a, once I worked out how much money he'd raised, that was a no brainer decision. And although it wasn't um, 10, 10 million pounds in the bank, it was a line slip for effectively that amount of money, which in 2000 was well worth giving up your existing career and, and taking a risk with. Mm. And, and then we came from there. I mean, you know, it, it seems mad now that, that we would talk about E. Lloyd's. Um, but, but then it was a very, very groundbreaking concept. And, and we weren't the only ones going after it. Yeah. And I don't think it's been fully realized even 20 some years on now. It's not, you know, we've the, the narrative of Lloyd's digitizing itself like fully has yet to sort of come to fruition. So I think we're still on the, a bit of the journey there. And it's interesting as well because you started very much in the enterprise business-to-business -business space. I know with Instech, you look at a lot of um, up and down the value chain, so a ton of consumer insure tech stuff, but also um, this enterprise stuff, so we can dive into that as, as we move forward as well. But um, from that very first part of the project, it's very much, you know, we've always sort of, the industry's always def defined these things as platforms. Like what is the next platform, the digital platform that the industry will move towards? What are your thoughts on 
the challenges that we've had to date and then sort of maybe the term platform as a, as a terminology in general? Um, well, I, I find pla- I've had a little trouble with the word platform only because I think it's massively overused. And if you look at almost every technology provider, certainly in tech, they would use the word platform. And I don't think Supersede is immune um, from that. Uh, so I think it's slightly overused, and, I, and, I, and my my definition is always much more about it it being a sort of um, um, operating platform, a place where people can come and put sort of multiple uh, applications. But but I, but I you know it's very difficult to find the right terminology, and I think what I've always been what RI3K was was in the end a many to many platform. In other words, it was it was, it was, a, it was a marketplace in which many brokers could access many carriers, and I think that. You know that's that's a really interesting space in which I know, you know you guys have had a, a good long hard look at, and which is the aspiration for most people who come into this that you you'll be ultimately a transactional platform where people can come in, run through a process, click a button, and buy their insurance, whether that be at a B two C level or a B two B level. Mm. Because we went for Lloyd's, it was obviously always a B two B thing, and 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 the starting point for all these things back in two thousand was. A digital replica of what existed in the physical world. I mean, we were literally making a place where a broker could do exactly what a broker was used to doing with an underwriter, but but you know, but online as a digital experience rather than as a physical experience. Yeah, no, certainly. It's I love the term you use there, many to many. When we think about the transition we're trying to achieve, because you could argue that that Lloyd's in its ancient iteration is many to many because there's lots of different participants there but that's not really what we mean here i guess actually lloyd's in its oldest iteration is kind of one-to-one because you have people queuing and waiting to go and visit an underwriter at a box and each underwriter can only serve one broker at a time and then as we said across consumer and and business gradually we saw one-to-many start to emerge where you know on on a single website that website could service many different requests for the same thing simultaneously and that, that platform, maybe the wrong word, Nirvana is where we've got many to many happening where those those requests are interfacing simultaneously across different providers and, and suppliers and matching, I guess, what we've struggled to, to really define a lot of times in insurance, these buyers and sellers simultaneously operating. You're never quite sure who's the buyer and who's the seller in commercial insurance especially, but it's quite a, a challenge to get everybody playing online simultaneously. Yeah. Uh- I mean, the thing about technology is it's forever evolving. So if you'd said to me 20 years ago, you'd be able to put um, a, a risk online and then algorithmically you would be able to define which of the various underwriters at Lloyd's might be able to, to take that or would have appetite for it and probably even the remaining capacity for it. You know, that would have been very exciting. Um, mm. Originally, you know, you just... You, it was what we called carpet bombing. You just loaded up lots of underwriters and, and pressed send, and you probably or you knew in advance who you were going to send it to because other people you used to walk it around. But but bit by bit now, the, the technology, your, the many-to-many technology, gets very very exciting because it comes so much more that you couldn't possibly replicate in the mm. digital world. Plus, the quality. We had to build everything from scratch with our I3K. I mean, it sounds weird now, but there was no such thing as a document management system. Or a, we got an Oracle database and were ruthlessly exploited by Oracle consultants, as it seems to me everybody was in the day. But everything else we had to build from scratch, and we even had to agree a process. I mean, it was in in those days there was no document you could go to that says this is the process at Lloyd's. And in fact, it was almost impossible to get everybody to agree to the same process in those early days. So, mm-hmm. so we were quite pioneering from that point of view. And of course, a lot of the work's been done now to standardize process and to a lesser extent, standardized data. And the more you get down that journey, the more the, benefit, the, more the benefits accrue. Yeah. I have to ask you a question, actually. So in my own time in the Lloyd strategy team, which would have been 2014, 15, 16, somewhere around then, we had a host of amazing role models to look at in all kinds of other industries. We'd be like, oh, what if Lloyd's became the eBay for risk, the Tinder for risk, the, I don't know, whatever you wanted, Facebook for risk. What were you looking at in the early days of RI3K as, oh, what if we had, you know, your E-Lloyds? What was the the inspiration that you could draw upon there? Well, I I think, I mean, it's a very nice question in the sense that every, every, 
every, every other industry was moving from a physical market to a, to a digital market, and, and therefore there were templates to borrow. Um, but the ones that most people went for, as, as, as examples, was the International Petroleum Exchange or Commodities Exchange. But, but they were slightly different in the sense that they were um, known things. I mean, Brent crude mm-hmm. has a price at any given moment in time, and then you, you can, you know, that, whereas we were sending something that had absolutely no sort of pre agreed price or an, even enough structure to be able to go through that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that what everybody wanted was an exact replica of what they were doing before. I mean, it, to the extent where. Once we'd built it, we started to demo it. And an underwriter once said to me, where do I put a pencil line on the slip? Yeah. And, and I said, well, we, we have to have a digital process now. We can't have a concept of putting a piece of a pencil signature on something. Yeah. They said, well, I can't you know, possibly use it then. Mm. So yeah. you know, we had to go back to the drawing board. That happened a lot. That sort of, you haven't exactly replicated what we, used to, what we were used to doing. Yeah. For for those who are less familiar, for listeners who are less familiar with the Lloyd's process, a penciled line is a very soft indication of what you're like. It's you've not put it on pen, you've not stamped it, but you're saying I'm going to do this, but I can revoke this kind of without you know. And this is what you're trying to say is is the digital version of that doesn't allow us to have this sort of soft indication expression of interest category. Um, and if you try to replicate everything, the the UX becomes untenable. Right? It's impossible to have like hundreds of options for all men because it, it doesn't lend itself very cleanly to ju- just being a, a pure replica. Um, but you, you made an interesting analogy to the the oil trade. And I think the industry is often looked at um, pursuing kind of what the financial markets have done. But we've always seen challenges there because it doesn't – There is it's not a one-to-one. Those are different types of products. Pure commodities don't lend themselves very nicely at all to – being how insurance risks will be traded. How, how have you sort of seen that sort of analogy go forward? And um, what do you sort of see the future look like? If, if it's not a pure commodity and it's not an exact replica of human interaction, but on computers, where do, where do you sort of see the, the end game in the next sort of 15, 20 years sort of landing? I, I, think, the, I think we're at the beginning of the end game now. Uh, and what I mean by that is, um, what can be algorithmically priced is starting to move up from simply houses, cars, and contents. Um, and uh, you look at the work of somebody like that, that um, Rethink are doing at, at, at Howden's with, with algorithmically or profiling risk so that they can work out where it might be auto-priceable as a broker or something like Fave, uh, which is owned by Canopius, where you know, that's quite complicated business. That that's, that's US high net worth business, but it's being auto-priced. So, um, you know, where you have volume, certainly in the delegated underwriting space, I think that more and more that starts to become uh, auto-priceable or algorithmically priceable. Um, but I also think that a good proportion of the total amount of business that goes through Lloyd's is never auto-priceable. I mean, it might be as a portfolio, as a whole portfolio, it might be something that could be uh, automated. But but, but I, I see increasingly kind of triage system, both for brokers and for underwriters, where, you know, this you can just auto-price, this might need a bit of manual intervention, this is manual the whole way because it's something that just has never been seen before or... Yeah. Just needs some brain to, but even you know even that would be a, a massive advance on where we are now and make us a much more efficient marketplace to deal with. Yeah, essentially, you mentioned the delegated authority business. I think sometimes, I mean sometimes, oftentimes, to borrow an American expression, I've <laughs> everybody flinched there. Um, the the justification for this innovation has been hard for a lot of market practitioners to really get on board with, you know, it's like, oh, do we really have to go through digitization or digitalization? It's, it's, it's quite a big arduous process for us when it's fine doing it face to face, etc. But there are a few areas uh, where for, you know, all sorts of cost reasons, especially 
the market is having to cut back on business plans and, and delegated authority as well. We've seen in the news a lot recently where Lloyds have said, you know, folks, you can't carry on writing this business with these huge acquisition and admin costs where it's being touched so many times where, yeah, a tiny bit of it is being, you know, part of a portfolio, but actually you're getting more um, exceptions to your rules that have to be then re-underwritten each time that none of this business is actually simple follow business. So it really does create a bit of real motivation to invest in these sorts of things. Whereas I think otherwise, as you said, it's sort of, we want to do exactly what we do now, but on a computer and then we'll be digital. Hooray. But we do, we do need a real reason, I think, to do these sorts of things. Well, I think there are two areas where I get incredibly grumpy. And um, as you know, I can be grumpy. Uh, and they are spreadsheets as the basis of managing and moving data around in the delegated underwriting space. There's simply no reason for it other than that it's a lowest common denominator transport mechanism. But they didn't tend to use the spreadsheets for what spreadsheets were invented for. They just happened to be a place where you can put something and send it to someone else and they can take a look at it. And, and the other thing is just the PDFs of documents. Yeah. <laughs> Those are in the modern era, so easily digitizable. And many, in many cases, they start digitized and then they get undigitized for the processes of, 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 of transport again. Yeah. You know, the, 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 some of this stuff is really, really difficult. Um, but but that, that, neither of those are difficult. And that, that should have been done a long time ago. And yeah, we, we, we agree. I think it's those seem like quite low hanging fruit. And it, it's this differentiation between documents and data, right? And you look at the really large firms who want to talk about how much data they have and and they've written you know hundreds of thousands if not millions of contracts of which they have a handful of fields from each which are data and then they've got a mountain of documents that are sort of sit that they can't actually extract anything of value from i think you know the the world that you're envisioning there is is one where by default it's data centric actually data driven the underlying information the entirety of of the process that's being involved, the deal that's being done in its entirety is sort of data centric, which then in the in the sort of immediate term delivers sort of efficiency gains. But in over time, it begins to deliver some very powerful ability to interrogate that data, get gather insights, plan for the future, change what you want to do as a strategy. Like it really begins to unlock a lot. But right now it's sort of, oh, here is, you know, we can extract, we have a PDF which we can now extract seven fields from. Okay, that's you've, you've increased fragmentally the amount of information that you have, but you're still like document centric, and there will be a transition. I think that that you have there, but yeah, the the spreadsheet reliance is painful. The, the, I mean, there's two aspects to it. I, th I think that that you know we 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 know we suffer from a kind of um, cultural issue, which is wedded to tradition wherever possible. But but the other thing which Probably I learned is the biggest thing I learned in the period that I was running RI3K or as it became Catalyst was um, how incredibly difficult it is to get consensus on anything. Mm. And any model which by its nature, because we've called these many to many, needs many to um, agree on things, is, is in the industry in which we work fabulously difficult. There's no ability to corral people if aon think it's a good idea you know marsh won't if the brokers like it then the carriers won't the, the the ability to get people all in the same place and and by extension if you then say right we'll never get this agreed we're going to mandate something or we're going to kind of this is the way that we are our 3k going to do it everyone goes up in arms and says well you never made the case you know you've got to never bought the hearts and minds you 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 lose either way and i think more than anything else, the last 20 years has shown through all the failures that we've had that just getting people, everybody who needs to, to agree to something at the same time. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the delegated underwriting is easily doable. It's just you can't get every party to the transaction to agree to do it, and therefore it stays where it is. Yeah, it's fascinating. I, I remember, you know, m m uh, not quite as recently, but I, a few years ago, we had the, the I Support Tom campaign you know for the, the revamp people and everything was orange and you had posters everywhere and it, that was very much the can we get the hearts and minds and then more recently you had the b3i <laughs> initiative that at least had 
you know, direct investment and sponsorship from massive firms. And obviously that's not come to fruition either. So it's, what, what have you got to do to get everybody on the same page? Or as, as you said, maybe that's not the approach to take. Yeah. I thought that B3I thing was really interesting when you look at the Swiss Re comment on it. They, mm-hmm. they, they, and one, I'm not one of these people who goes, well, I told you so, because I mean, it seemed to be for the first time for a long time the industry actually put money into experimenting on something and learned. And we don't have this concept of quick fail. It wasn't particularly a quick fail, but mm-hmm. uh, you know, a lot was learned. And, if, and the thing that was learned was, it was almost what we're talking about, which is you, you need to have every party to the transaction on that same one technology. They were effectively trying to do something halfway through the transaction at the reinsurance phase, not having captured the data they needed to at the insurance phase. And, yeah. and they took the view, which is, I think, rightly, that they would never be able to conjoin the two, so they gave up. But yeah. um, that's what we learned. Right? We learned that everyone's got to be in the game, otherwise it's very difficult to do this stuff. Yeah, I, th- I think there's always complexity. When you have that coopetition kind of, model if it's a word that we could, we people still use these days um but there's there's certainly difficulty in when you need to align with certain changes even something very small so if a disagreement in um lines of business or geography namings or or whatever that might be when you're especially working working on a blockchain um but when you have to agree with what you're going to select going forward there's always an imbalance however small it may be that one party is going to sacrifice more, even if it's they have to spend 10,000 more man hours or people hours upgrading their system to adapt to the other one. Like, There's always a little bit of a trade-off. So it's, it's, it's looking at it more of going, well, why should we have to in- make our internal system changes? You should do that. So people get really entrenched into what would be, if you're starting from scratch, no one would, no one would debate this. But if we were starting from a blank piece of paper, we could probably align on these things much more easily, much more quickly, but we're not. We're starting, as we talk about all the time, a deep mountain of legacy data and technologies. So the change required for all parties to align on a new model going forward is felt differently by different firms. And when you're doing that alongside a potential um, competitor, that feels more stressful. I don't want our team to spend hundreds of millions of more dollars upgrading so we map to your systems. You should map to our systems version. And and so that's that's sort of underlying a lot of this. And I think one of the reasons that these things can sort of really get sort of stuck is is lo- those sort of internal battles that you bump into. I think the, the technical term for this kind of inertia is, is status quo loss aversion. Mm. So it's a really good Machiavellian quote that I've seen pop up a few times. It's something along the lines of the innovator will find no friends amongst anyone who's benefiting from the status quo. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yep. <laughs> no, that, I mean, that seems to be exactly what insured tech has become, and, and it, it won't, perhaps this era is already coming to an end, but mm. it became the party that entered the equation to temporarily or permanently improve what was there before because the, the, the establishment, the, the incumbent players, couldn't improve it themselves. Yeah. And that hasn't happened much in the London market necessarily. But if you look at something like embedded insurance, for instance, it's a it's a world completely dominated by insurtech because because insurtech had the it has the capacity to build the technology that sat between a distributor and an insurer, mm-hmm. uh, and and the incumbent world sitting mostly on legacy couldn't you know possibly do it. So, and I think bit by bit one world partners and or consumes the other. But mm-hmm. but that's exactly the role it seems to me that InsureTech has played. It's it's said well if you guys aren't going to do it then there's an opportunity here and we will step in. Yeah, I definitely remember reading InsureTech London's various reports over time where we started with that you know wow okay look at the potential for disruption and then seeing the way that the parties sort of coalesced then maybe more collaboration and partnership was the way forwards. I are we are we still in a sort of optimistic or positive bullish view of of partnership for insurtechs as the way forwards do you think how's that no i think so for sure I, I mean i think the days of what i call the bedsit driven innovation are over and then there's a lot of excitement about some 23 year old from imperial with a degree in data science who was going to show you how to insure your pets or something i mean that, I, I think that day's long gone i think the companies to be taken seriously are those that the investment world is prepared to give serious amounts of money to, and in, on the whole, they're pretty good. They're pretty good judges. But if you look at what's happened to Instech as a 
community, it was all about startups at the beginning. And we gave them a platform and a place where they could come and showcase what they were doing. But our membership now is likely to be NASDAQ or MasterCard mm. or Salesforce or you know, Stripe, as it is anybody else. And, and that's because the, the incumbent world sees the value in um, partnering and or acquiring and or learning from you know what's going on in that space and it's you know there won't be as many unicorns as everybody imagined because the partnership model will be the prevailing model and it'll, it'll get absorbed either you know one way or another it gets absorbed into the way the incumbent world works but you know and, and that's why i think there's much talk about m a these days because the really good ones will i'm sure just get bored mm -hmm. the biggest insurance companies in the world if they become a threat or they become they, they also they so patently are a place of opportunity yeah and speaking of reports and, and instinct, there's been one quite interesting to this episode released quite recently. I wondered if you wanted to give us a sort of mini tour of your, your marketplaces and exchanges report because we, we really enjoyed reading it, but mm. our listeners might not have seen it yet. So what does it say and where can they find it? You're very neatly done. Um, and th thank you. Uh, y yes, it's, I mean, this is a, an area which, for the reasons you've touched on, was always fascinating me and I've had 20 years of experience in it and then and then every now and again i get sort of um a, 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 a passionate desire to tell everybody what's going on in my mind mm. um and this is one of those it wasn't driven by our membership particularly asking to write about it but but i could see for myself um the moving of the tectonic plates and we now have a very well resourced research team so writing these things becomes fundamentally easier and and the underlying thesis is that when, while we started out replicating the IPE, the ICE, or E. Lloyd's to build a physical equivalent, I don't think now we will ever see a big utility type model. Mm -hmm. Back to the issues we've touched on. You can't get consensus. Um, the establishment has proved itself not well equipped, to put it politely. Uh, to lead these things. Uh, and therefore, I think the next generation, partly fueled by InsureTech, is these lots of individual platforms, to use your word, that are solving different problems. Some of them solve a problem of giving you access to different sources of capacity. Some of them provide you with a niche area you can go and insure your crypto assets. Um, you know, there, there are now... An, Lots of people who are who have very sensibly, to my view, said that that big one looks beyond us. But if we pick off parts of the value chain, we become niche in just cargo. We can build a very interesting business with that, and that's that's the basis of the report. And, and we called it ten ways in which marketplaces and exchanges are changing the nature of insurance because each of those ten categories are doing something new and solving. An existing problem of which you know that's why we featured you guys because you, you you know you you selected a problem to solve and you're solving it and and i'm sure when you when you are finished solving that you'll go on and solve something else that's what i like about this model is it becomes highly doable your original plan and then those who are successful and can raise the money will get will go on from where they start to, to solve more and more of these problems yeah and i think that's you've touched on some of the historical challenges people have have tried to to run into trying to do this is they try to do everything at once it has to do all spectrums of insurance and then reinsurance and then maybe retro or ILS and they're trying it, it just makes it impossible to service any one of them sufficiently well but in this in this new framework people can lean into the areas that work really really well if if there's gaining traction across different you might see little mergers similar to like a lemonade metro mile in the u.s for like that kind of model but also if you look at other startups who um are building like um hr software or something they might partner with a company that's done contracts or similar because they're all sort of solving the niche that they're starting in and then bumping into adjacencies and seeing who else is having some success who else has found the model that's working in those areas and you see this sort of more organic kind of growth um versus the historical model which was let's try to solve all of this at once eat the elephant in one go um and then 
been perpetually plagued with um, development delays and everything else because they've tried to do so much at once, solve for every fringe use case at once, you know, versus sort of just chipping away at a core problem and then seeing what happens as you as you gain traction there. So many things become solvable now. I mean, a lot of the niche exchanges which only do one class are able to put 20 people around a table who are all they need in a, in, to be able to access their entire market for that, not hundreds of people. And then to agree data standards, you know, and then to agree mm-hmm. far more easily what their next rollout will, so that they can excel, they can make their exchange fundamentally more efficient because they are uh, able to align all the parties around more efficient ways of doing things um, and, and agreeing sort of more standardization over time, which itself drives the, drives the efficiency. And that's what I like about it. it, it it's just easier to achieve things. You can, get, you can just go much faster. And at some point, those exchanges become so much cheaper and quicker as a place to transact business that that, that becomes a you know, competitive advantage. And others have to say to themselves, what do we do now? Do we build one of those? Do we go and play on that one? But we can't, we can't, well, they're getting a quote in five seconds flat and we're wandering something around the market. We, 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 we've got to do something about this. I I also think that you'll, you'll, you'll begin to bump into the self-fulfilling prophecy where the success and momentum of those marketplaces and those exchanges makes it easier for new entrants to join them. So if you think about historically, there's always been criticism of the willingness for executives in our industry to invest in these sorts of efforts because it always felt like a huge multi-year project with a huge amount of upfront costs, et cetera. And, and no one wanted to put their sort of head up to do that. But if, as you, these things gain momentum and they see other people in peer groups and they see that they can actually get up and running on that even to a smaller degree over, over the course of a few months versus multiple years and the, the cost of joining those exchanges decreases, more and more will sort of go, we should do a bit of that. Or, and that momentum accelerates and then more companies see their competitors there as well. So now they're missing out. Ben's used the example before about at a certain scale, like Hilton has to be on Hotels.com because no one's just going to go to their site if everyone starts their search here. That same behavior will happen in our industry where you'll see this massive acceleration where people go, well, we need to figure out how we, how we also you know, play in this environment because if we don't, it's, it's going to be jeopardizing to our business and our growth potential. I think to your earlier point, the challenge we have is that initial chicken and egg problem is, is so forceful that the negative network effects are almost ridiculously strong in our space compared to the positive network effects. It tends to just take one party to be a pain. You know, I think with B3i, for example, uh, the breakers were not really invited at the beginning mm-hmm. and then eventually came on as kind of testing partners um, and then went off and did their own sort of thing. Yeah, um, yeah, it starts to fall down suddenly if you're missing key participants. And even had they taken part, yes, you had 20 major insurers and reinsurers, but what if you want to place a deal that's got other insurers that don't want to play ball? Mm-hmm. Suddenly again, one Hilton yep. you know, can, can ruin it because you, well, you, you need not just one outcome from your many-to-many interactions you actually need many as the result yeah well and that's further complexity added to that with sort of the consolidation at the top in our industry the sort of how much control the few big players can have and then to your earlier machiavellian quote it's sort of if those firms benefit the most which historically they have because they're the biggest from the status quo they're oftentimes the least excited to sort of kick the wall down and tear out tear up the playbook because it's serving them very, very well right now. So you're trying to solve around all of these various things and, and build a business that sort of threads the needle as they say. Is that a, do you guys use thread, threads the needle as a saying? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> these are ones as, I, as I'm saying them going, oh, this might only resonate with the American audience. Yeah. I don't Yeah. Well, that's part of the reason I wrote the report, which is <laughs> to highlight the fact that there are people who are doing things. In other words, it's very, I think the easiest thing to do is do nothing. Yeah. And at some point I made the observation that even after reading the report, most people still do nothing because they're either protected because they're one of the big players who have leverage to enable them to, to sweat the existing model 
or I think some will necessarily do some of the work which enables them to play in a kind of ecosystem world where they need to integrate to multiple parties. I think people have got to get their heads around that. But there are people who are saying, we can't go on like this any longer. We're going to build one ourselves. And some of that's innovation and entrepreneur driven. And some of it's actually been driven by the marketplace itself. Mm. And none of those people are looking to lock anybody out. In other words, they're, to, they're building them with the view that once they've proven the model, others will be invited at any time. That They will have governance and data protection models, which means that there's no possibility of there being any, you know, bad behavior in in running of those exchanges yeah. so i i admire the you know as i always have done and this because in my dna I, I admire those who are saying right we can't carry on like this for longer, like any longer let's 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 build something and, and 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 i think almost all of them would welcome discussion with their competitors or with other markets at any time mm -hmm. because they, they haven't built it to for just for themselves they've built it as the answer to the market's problems yeah i remember concluding interestingly with this sort of, let's just do it ourselves, or we've got to get this done, so let's crack on with it. I remember one of the major conclusions of a report I did in my consulting days was you've got to be omni-channel for now, at least until, if ever, this ultimate solution emerges. And I, I, th I think of things like um, DocuSign, for example, as being quite creator-driven to some mm. extent. So if somebody wants to get their document signed, they've got to choose how to do it. Yes, some of your signees might prefer that you used hello sign instead. But at the end of the day, if they want to sign the document, they're not going to ruin it for everyone else. You send it out as the creator and hopefully everybody signs your document and it's done. And actually then if another creator sits sat next to you decides to send something through hello sign, all those participants are going to find a way to sign it via hello sign mm. as well. So I, I feel like if we can empower the the creators, I think for us in SuperSeed, that's often the seedants and the breakers who are the deal makers. Mm -hmm to just get a really good tool that they can use to get their individual deal done, then if people want to be a part of that deal, then <laughs> use the thing and it's going to make their lives easier as well. And, and if there's another one, great. But, mm. yeah, That's the biggest thing that's changed in the last 20 years. I said earlier we had to build everything from scratch. You, you can walk out now and talk to Microsoft or Amazon or Salesforce and you can get just about everything you need you better start configuring but you know you you it's easy at that point it's easy to integrate with it's easy to build a process it's it's, it's probably got some things in the front which will turn data and doc documents into data yeah. that you could spin up pre-existing technology so mm -hmm. so not only have you are you you know have you got the creators and are encouraging the creators but you you, you can give them the tools and, and that's the biggest difference that's why there are so many mm -hmm platforms playing out there right now because yeah. it's because the toolkit's so good and cordy gave us a challenge earlier Ooh. before we got started recording he did i'm wondering if we should move on to that segment so the as as you probably know from from listening to the podcast we always like to have a few games that we play with guests especially um this one is our analogy battle um as the chairman of instec i we wanted to sort of do what is sort of your analogy for the insure tech space so something that describes insurtech as a movement or an idea more generally we'll have ben kick it off and see how and we'll see how we get how we get on the warm-up act supporting. <laughs> here we go i i'm cheating slightly because i i gave this at a, an aon leadership offsite years ago i but basically i compared insurtech a while ago to veganism i especially as we were going through this transition where most people are still not vegans in the world, but there are increasingly options made available that cater towards people who want to use vegan products for something. So you start to see it pop up more and more, most famously with, in the UK, the Greg's vegan sausage roll and gradually McDonald's and Burger King and all the fast food chains realizing we've got to have uh, a, a vegan option. And I see it quite similar to InsureTech in the sense that we haven't seen suddenly everything taken over and turned into you know vegan alternatives and we now only use vegan we're seeing little pockets make it available we're seeing particular niches like fast food where it's you know where perhaps the supply chains were the most harrowing mm -hmm. <laughs> replacing uh, some of their meat ingredients with vegan options instead uh, where the economies of scale make sense where it, it makes sense to invest and where your value proposition isn't about 
how well you've reared your animals. Mm-hmm. I, it's, it's a very similar I, environment and movement that, that's sort of gradually building momentum, but not necessarily kicking out the former status quo. I like your multi-channel comparison too, where it's like, you don't have to go all vegan, but you should have a couple things on your menu, right? It's this sort of transitional thing there. Do you want to go next then? No, I I can't beat that. I think that's... (laughs) He's got a strong lead. I I, I think that's a strong lead. Uh, But I I would say this, that that we organize dinners every couple of weeks. And um, it's fair to say uh, that the event organizer does spend a lot of time having to um, deal with everybody's different mm. food choices these days. <laughs> and just the day when you could put a set menu in front of everybody is longer gone when yeah. we, when if you have 20 people, you'll have to deal with a lot of different kinds of tastes and preferences mm. in the world. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's, a, it's as, good, as good as you're going to get from me. <laughs> uh, the, the one that I came up with during the show was um, it's, it's sort of cheating. So it's looking at uh, another industry being quite broadly impacted by technology, um, but that of of travel in the same kind of way of every trip might be a little bit different, um, just like risks are and, and clients might have numerous different types of risks. And in certain cases, I want to get a fancy hotel and stay in a big city. In other cases, I want to find a yurt in the countryside or I want to get um, some additional coverage or I want to book an experience. And I'm what historically would have been go to one person and hope that that person at this you know high street storefront can solve all of my needs, whether that's insurance needs or whether that's um, pl- planning a trip, has has moved online and and the the insurance insure tech ecosystems that are emerging and evolving give you more options. You can break your policies up. You can get just certain things for different carrier uh, different carriers for different needs. And you can be a bit more bespoke around, okay, well, I have this little thing I want to make sure I have coverage too, and there's someone else to sort of support that, however much that might be, um, slightly more niche or nuanced or similar. Um, yeah. But it's parallels quite heavily to just technology in general. No, but I, I think it's a, it's a very good one because it, it, when you think of the trips you've done recently and, and when you've traveled, it is rare, although some sites you know will try to compel you to use just one you know, op- option for flights, hotel, and hire car. Mm-hmm. We rarely do, right? We, we actually tend to use multiple exchanges. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of- often with consumer stuff, it's more of like an aggregator type model. Uh, but, you know, we use one thing to find our flights and then we switch to a completely different thing to find a hotel. Or I, I used one for campsites as well, yeah. you know, in the past. I Same for restaurants and so on. We might have all sorts of alternatives depending on what we're looking for at different times so yeah that idea as i think we've all concluded i think in, in this episode that there's just going to be one great big thing and all the industry participants are going to collaborate to build it together is maybe not not only not the right thing for our industry but not actually something that's tended to be the end result for any other industries yeah. or most other industries either well i think the underlying shared sort of features of both of those analogies is the the benefit to the end consumer right if if you were vegan a number of years ago like you could go to these two restaurants and those two restaurants had one choice each right and and you were quite confined to what you could have and now it's sort of like you can go most places there's there's more there's numerous options everywhere you go so the the experience at the end is much better um if you think about it in an insurance angle if i'm a broker and i have a client and that client now has has one of their large clients um, wants to have horses. We, I've never done bloodstock sort of insurance before. This mechanism now allows me to go to find the people who can help me with this risk so that I can sort of better service my end client. Like it's this sort of experience is, is improving in such a way that you're always able to sort of fill whatever sort of gaps you might have um, or needs you might have as whether it's as a consumer or as a, business owner i think that's the benefit of everyone down the chain so um we're, we're getting there i think the industry is moving along very very nicely i, I was thinking about the you know, the supermarket analogy to your point about not going to one place um you know that's patently not right i, I mean i do think that this there's a, a, a company we feature in the report called bolt tech I, I do feel that that that's a supermarket i feel like you can go to the supermarket and, and you can buy a lot of things from the supermarket. Whereas 
what you two are talking about. And and I, and I think if you know in, in the in, in the analogy game, if I look at what Intertech is, um, you know, it, it is like um, an old school marketplace. Mm-hmm. It's, there's, there's lots of shops. Yeah, and you you go and talk to any you go and talk to the data shop, or you go and talk to the technology shop, or you you know you go and talk to the API shop. There, it's it's like having lots of people doing crafts mm-hmm. and, and 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 inventing that you can go and talk to about what you might be able to buy to solve your problems. Or yeah. some of them will go on to create their own MGAs and their own possibly insurance companies with their, from their market stall. Yeah. But it still feels like there are lots of stalls rather yeah. than one big place to go. I love that. The modern artisans. Modern artisans. There we are. Yeah, exactly. Indeed. Go home with head held high. You should. We, we'll, we'll certainly put a link in the notes, um, both to the, the uh, most recent papers you've put out, as well as to your um, your site, because you host, I still monthly, I think, the sort of events you hold in London. So listeners who are in London, who are interested in this space, which if you listen to our podcast, you probably are, um, would certainly recommend swinging by there, not only to say hi to me and Ben, but um, to say hi to you, Robin, and get to sort of experience what, what Instec is doing in, in the London scene, which I think is fabulous. If anyone wants to come, let me know, and we'll, we'll sort out a free ticket. Next one is 13th, 13th of September um, at the Steel Yard down by Cannon Street Station. Wonderful. We'll promote this in front of that. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Robin. So much, Thank you so much. covered. So much that's opened up as well. We barely touched on APIs or <laughs> open data and so on. But yeah, lots yeah. to get our minds Indeed. fizzing until the next episode of the Reinsurance Podcast. Well, thanks, thanks very much for having me. I've really enjoyed it. Many thanks to Ben, Jared, and Cody for inviting Robin in for that recording. Now, we'll be turning the tables and speaking to the Supersede team ourselves again in 2023. And by the way, we like their recording studio so much, we're going to use it ourselves for an audio and a video recording in January with Haley Maynard from Chaucer. Definitely going to be worth joining us for that one. Well, this is the last episode of the year. Thank you to everybody, all our members and listeners around the world for all the support and the positive words. If you want to find out what we're up to in 2023 or more about membership, contact me, Matthew Grant, on LinkedIn or any of us. Hello at instec.co. That's it. We're done.